At the end of my college career, I thought I had the whole future figured out. Because I was involved in international justice work in college, I was either going to go do a faith-based program in India, teach at a Christian school in South Korea, or do a teaching assistantship program in Turkey, all international. Surely, God would bless the best of my options that I had presented God, right? Wrong. <laughs> Through a series of events that could be deemed as nothing less than miraculous due to the outlandish ways in which things fell apart, I found myself optionless, defeated, and alone. Why, God? What are you thinking? Why are you punishing me for wanting to do good work? It just didn't make sense. But then it happened. The Holy Spirit spoke and moved through a different series of events that could be deemed as nothing less than miraculous due to the outlandish way in which things fell together. A professor encouraged me to apply to Teach for America, an AmeriCorps teaching program. Unsure and directionless, I complied. And while applying, I felt compelled to select South Dakota as a placement option. The only other reason I could think of as being close to my family in Omaha. Um, all the other locations I chose were fun cities with friends that I had living in them, right? Why would I want to go there? So, finally, when the acceptance letter came announcing my placement at St. Francis Indian School on the Rosebud Reservation in South Dakota, I was shocked. I couldn't understand, why, why did I select this? Once again, I found myself asking, why God? Feeling utterly alone without community, dragging my feet and letting go of my self-created plans, I followed the Holy Spirit's urgings into the wilderness of South Dakota without any idea of what was going to happen. In the scripture we have been reading during this sermon series on the wilderness, Matthew 4, 1 through 11, Jesus gives us a much different model of this spirit-led wilderness experience. In verse 1, Jesus puts up little resistance to the spirit urging him into the wilderness. The Holy Spirit leads Jesus out of community and into the wilderness, and Jesus willingly follows, despite the fact that he will be tempted in the wilderness. Without hesitation, Jesus follows the Holy Spirit into the wilderness to see what was going to happen. Jesus' wilderness experience is particularly defined by fasting or abstinence from food for 40 days and 40 nights. I can't imagine that long without food. Jesus' 40 days of fasting and being tested in the wilderness harkens back to the 40 years the Israelites spent in the wilderness struggling to find enough food and sustenance after their exodus from Egypt. This reference to the Israelites is not a coincidence and continues throughout this text, offering us an example of a communal wilderness experience. But whether it be Jesus' individual temptation in the wilderness or the Israelites' communal wandering in the wilderness, fasting involved abstinence from food. However, fasting can be more than just abstinence from food. Fasting is the intentional denial of anything that we desire to partake in and are roadblocks in the way of us seeking God's presence and direction. For instance, in 1 Corinthians 7, 5, Paul uses the example of fasting from sexual intimacy. He states, Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a set time, to devote yourselves to prayer and then come back together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. 
While food and intimacy are not bad things, and in fact are things of necessity and celebration, Jesus and Paul show us that intentional fasting and abstinence is something that we need in order to seek clarity, answers, and time of discernment from God. Fasting is a way for us as individuals to deeply dwell and experience the presence of God. But, before moving forward, I want to bookmark the end of this verse, where Paul states, for a set time, devote yourself to prayer, and then come back together again. This idea of coming back together is essential, and something that Jesus will elaborate for us later in the story. While the individual wilderness experience and time of discernment is essential for spiritual growth, it cannot occur without the intentional coming back together into community in order to live out our calls. Let's see how Jesus' temptation lived out this reality. So back with Jesus in the wilderness, where he's alone, the tempter shows up. As we saw in verse 1, the appearance of Satan was not a surprise. Being drawn into the wilderness by the Holy Spirit implies temptation in this text, as well as the other gospel wilderness narratives, Mark 1 and Luke 4. Satan then presents Jesus with three temptations that seduce Jesus towards demonstrating his divine power. And in each of these three temptations, Satan twists scriptural interpretation from the Hebrew Bible or Old Testament in order to bring validity to his words. First, Satan tries to convince Jesus to demonstrate his own divine power and agency as the Son of God by turning stones into bread in order to satisfy his hunger. Turning stones into bread parallels God turning the rocky, dewy soil into manna bread for the Israelites during the 40 years wilderness exile. This action by Jesus would demonstrate his power as the Son of God apart from God the Father. However, Jesus knows that he is not in the wilderness to discern God's he is in the wilderness to discern God's will, not to demonstrate his power apart from God. Jesus is in the wilderness to have relationship with God. Thus, Jesus rebukes Satan in verse 4 by saying, One does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Here, Jesus references the Israelites' time of wilderness exile and quotes directly from Deuteronomy 8, challenging Satan's scriptural reference with his own. Shut down by Jesus, the tempter tries another angle. Satan takes Jesus to the holy city of Jerusalem and sets him atop of the temple. For Jesus and all the Jewish people of this time, Jerusalem would have been a reminder of Israel's historical power as a monarchical kingdom. And the temple was the architectural symbol of this power and this kingdom's devotion to God and witness to Israelite being, Israelites being God's chosen people. All of this history placed against Israel's current subservience in the text to the Roman Empire underpins Satan's second temptation. Satan tempts Jesus, throw yourself from the temple and force God to intervene in your death by sending angels to save you. And this intervention would have been visible by all the people of Jerusalem, giving this community of people the, the hope that Jesus could bring about power, blessedness, and might to Jerusalem and God's chosen people through Jesus. 
And to strengthen this temptation further, Satan ties his words to Scripture, quoting Psalm 91, 11, 12. For he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. On their hands they will bear you up so that you will not dash your foot against a stone. This temptation to test God's fidelity to God's Son using Scripture and powerful historical narratives must have been emotional and tempting for Jesus. However, Jesus rebukes Satan again, referencing Deuteronomy 6 when he tells the devil not to put God to the test. Jesus will eventually call into question Satan's twisted interpretation of Psalm 91, but first, Satan wastes no time in presenting his third and final temptation. Satan takes Jesus to the top of a tall mountain and tells him that Jesus could have all the world as his kingdom if he would only bow down and worship Satan. This last temptation is actually more of a power grab and bribe from Satan to try and steal the Son of God away from God the Father and the Holy Spirit, trying to disrupt the community of oneness within the Trinity. Just as God took Abraham to a tall mountain and told him that he could have all the land as long as he remained faithful to God, Satan has taken Jesus to the top of the mountain and offers Jesus the world. Satan recreates the moment between God and Abraham with himself and Jesus. But Jesus is not blind to the false and ill-motivated power grab of Satan. In a final rebuke that casts the devil away, Jesus references Deuteronomy 6, 10-13. When the Lord your God has brought you into the land that God swore to your ancestors, take care that you do not forget the Lord. God you shall serve, and by God's name alone you shall swear. Jesus draws together all of Satan's twisted references to the Israelites in the wilderness in order to rebuke Satan. Jesus shows Satan that the wilderness was and is a place of personal preparation to be fully devoted to God's plans for our futures, not to demonstrate power over others. Jesus also shows that Satan's use of Psalm 91 as a way to demonstrate God's might and power over others is false. In Psalm 91, God's presence is described using the Hebrew word Shaddai. Shaddai is a word that is translated as protector or refuge, often drawing on the imagery of a mother holding a child to her breast. <laughs> this imagery of motherly love and refuge does not mesh with the often cultural interpretation that we hear connecting God with military might and a battle fortress. Instead, this psalm presents God as a refuge and protector that draws on feminine and motherly imagery. In verse 4, God the protector is compared to a mother bird covering her brood with her wings, furthering this mother image. As a result, it is important to reread this text with the understanding of God as a caring and protective mother instead of our common cultural understanding of God the protector as a militaristic male leader. God is our refuge, not because God protects us against physical earthly harms, demonstrates power through us by military might against other peoples, or exerts power over others, as Satan suggests. Instead, God is our refuge amidst our spiritual struggles and emotional trials. God is our refuge amidst our human wilderness experiences. But God being our refuge does not mean that things will be easy. 
In fact, because Jesus shows us that our relationship with God in the wilderness is a relationship of empowerment, we will be often led into trouble and discomfort in our relationships, especially with the status quo and powerful. Jesus' life and death models for us the dangerous business of wilderness empowerment. God is our refuge, not because God promises to keep us safe from danger, hidden away in an isolated fortress, but because God promises to send us with strength and courage into communities and opportunities to advance God's intention for all people to experience salvation and well-being, even when this relationship and community building is uncomfortable and sometimes dangerous. By rebuking Satan and refusing the temptation to assert his power, Jesus demonstrates his willingness to follow God's will, empowered by the Holy Spirit, to a life lived, devoted to building God's salvific kingdom on earth in the present. By standing firm and honoring the will of God, angels replace Satan and wait on Jesus. By rightly interpreting Psalm 91, the verse is fulfilled by the attendance of angels in Jesus' life for dwelling in God as the source of his refuge and hope. Some scholars even believe that this attendance of angels could mean that Jesus was served a meal. The Greek word that we translate as waited on can be used in the context of a meal being served. Perhaps these angels were serving Jesus food at the end of his fast. But either way, Jesus is immediately being delivered from his solitary wilderness experience into a community of angels. And meals are one of the most intimate ways of entering into community with others. And following that meal, Jesus returns back into society and community. And in this way, Jesus shows us that when we find purpose in the wilderness, we are called courageously to enter into and live out God's will for our lives in community. God is our refuge and hope in the midst of our wilderness, whether that be internal struggles, personal crisis, or communal trials, so that we may have the hope and courage to enter into spirit-empowered community and relationships. At the end of Jesus' time in the wilderness, he returned to society to live out his call in community, and Jesus needed to be in community, both for personal accountability to his call and for raising up leaders, other leaders, and disciples. He also needed to interact with the world in order to live out his missional call from Luke 4 to bring good news to the poor, proclaim release to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, to let the oppressed go free, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Jesus provides us the perfect model of how to enter our time in wilderness to clarify and be empowered to live out our call from God. However, the gospel authors in Jesus' temptation also provide a communal and human-flawed model of the wilderness experience through the references to the Israelites. The Israelites' journey in the wilderness provides us an example of humans, just like us, bumbling through attempts to encounter God in the wilderness in order to live out their life mission. For the Israelites and for many of us, the wilderness experience is inherently unwanted and resisted. Unlike Jesus, the Israelites often failed when tested with their wilderness experience, just as we do. 
As a result, the Israelites provide a more realistic portrayal of what we will experience in our attempts to be faithful because we are all broken humans. We all too often fail in our attempts to be faithful in the wilderness experiences because we are indeed humans and we are broken. But the power of Jesus' model is that we must continue to try. Jesus' model is aspirational. Jesus' model is what we hope and strive to achieve as human followers of Jesus Christ. However, in the Israelites' wilderness experience, what is most clear is that the Israelites would not have survived or attempted to accomplish God's plan for them without their community. As we bookmarked earlier with 1 Corinthians 7.5, it tells us after our time of wilderness temptation and discernment, we must come back together into community. We must come back into community so that Satan cannot continue to tempt us in isolation, and so that we can hold one another accountable to the calls to justice and relationships we experienced in the wilderness. So, just as the Israelites could only survive their wilderness experiences with community, so too must we enter and dwell in community within our wilderness experiences. Psalm 91 we read before, is often interpreted as an individual and personal prayer. However, that you we read in it is most accurately translated as a plural you. God isn't just calling us as individuals into kingdom building work. God is calling us as a community and as a church body to perpetuate God's salvific kingdom of justice and well-being for all people on earth in the present. God prepares us in the wilderness so that we can go out into the world and our communities, empowered by the Holy Spirit, to create kingdom relationships. By following the Holy Spirit into the wilderness of South Dakota, God prepared and revealed to me plans for the future. Don't get me wrong. There will be, and still are, many more wilderness experiences and discernment times that the Holy Spirit will lead me into the future. But the wilderness of South Dakota was vital for the future I am present in now. For discovering and accepting my call to ministry, for witnessing systemic racism, unfair laws, and structures that marginalize Native communities, discovering inadequate education and health care for our most vulnerable communities, this wilderness experience showed me that my call to ministry must address these issues of injustice. But most of all, this wilderness experience showed me that injustice must be righted through relationship and community. Community was the most vital and unexpected part of my wilderness experience in South Dakota. A group of us sought out and developed a Thursday night Bible study group, even though it was time-consuming and difficult, because we knew that we needed a community of support, challenge, and growth during this difficult time of teaching. This group, as well as the intentional relationships developed in the school and local reservation community, was an integral part of my transformation as a human, a dweller in God's refuge, and a participant with the Spirit in serving and transforming the world towards God's justice. It was this intentional community, developed and carefully fostered with commitment and love, that was a catalyst for my individual wilderness experiences to manifest and unite into a community that organized justice action. Each one of us in our unique experiences, gifts, and talents 
manifested into a force of change, grace, and love that we could never have accomplished on our own. But that is not the end of the story. Today, it is from this community, Urban Village Church, that I find hope for spirit-led action. As a community of unique individuals with a vast wealth of wilderness experiences and callings, we must go out into this city and create relationships empowered by the Holy Spirit for salvation, justice, and holistic well-being for all people. Where is the Holy Spirit calling you into the wilderness? To what mission have you been called? And how can we partner together as a community toward these goals? Let's try to figure this out and act together. Thanks be to God.